Our passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 13. If you'll turn there in your Bibles, I'll be reading from that. Mark chapter 13. This morning we hear the very words of Jesus Christ as directly as ever. This is a man who forgave sin without asking God's permission, who claimed to be the beginning and the end, a man who raised himself and others to life again, and as Sandy was playing that beautiful hymn, who loves us deeply. And so we'll hear from him. I pray that our hearts are open as we read. I'll be starting in verse 24 and reading to the end of Mark chapter 13, all the way to the end to verse 37. We stand in honor of God's word being read, so if you'll stand with me. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will not will will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds And from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And when I, what, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And you have your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 13. This is our second sermon on this passage. And when you read Mark chapter 13, what you're hearing is what Jesus says about the end of the world. And we talked last week about the destruction of the temple, and that runs from verses 5 to 23, and how that was a tremor or a foreshadowing of the main event, the return of Christ. Or the second advent, the first advent we think of as Christ's coming. So we celebrate the season of advent at Christmas. And this talks about his second advent. And when he comes, it's going to be a much, on a much larger scale than the little tremor that happened at the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. You remember the, the picture that we had Last week was of if you've ever seen one of these disaster movies, they all have the same little scene in the movie. There's a coffee cup on a saucer 
And then it just shows you the ripples that are happening across the top of the water or the coffee. And you know, as an audience member, something much bigger is about to happen. And when we see the fall of Jerusalem that happened in 70 A.D., we notice we know that something bigger is going to happen. The other thing that we picked up in just reading through the text and you see it in these verses as well is that Jesus's main concern here is not about prophecy. He's being very pastoral. He's caring for his people because he understands that when your world begins to quake, when your world begins to rip apart, the easiest thing to do is to get your eyes off Jesus. And so over and over again in the passage, he says, stay awake, be on guard, be careful, be aware, be alert. He doesn't want his followers to fall away. And so that's a sum of what we talked about last week. And I wanted to end the sermon really with this sermon. And I wanted to ask this question. How should the imminent return of Christ impact me today? If the text is true, and I think it is, if he could come back at any moment, how should that really impact the way I live today? Let's look at the parable here at the end of the chapter. Verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge. Each has his own work and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, at midnight, when the cock crows or in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So when we look at this parable, the one thing that we see that is clear is that you and I are not masters. Let me say that again. When you read this parable, one of the things that you should pick up is that you and I are not masters. We're managers. We're servants. And so if we are managers, managers need to be be reminded that the master is actually going to come back. And I want to look at how the imminent return of the master or Jesus should impact our lives in these three ways. First, it should have an immediate impact on our morality. Secondly, it should have an immediate impact on our money. And finally, it should have an immediate impact on our mission. So Jesus could come at this moment. And knowing that, that should impact our morality, it should impact our money, and it should impact our mission. So let's look at those three things together. Our morality. When Jesus returns, everyone's going to see the Son of God, it says in verse 26, coming in clouds with great power and glory. And so what is one of the ways in the Old Testament that you recognize the presence of God? In the Old Testament, God's presence is revealed in certain ways. And at least one of those ways would be fire, right? 
the, the, the bush is consumed by fire that Moses sees. When Elijah is on top of Mount Carmel, what falls from heaven? Fire falls from heaven. When the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, what leads them at night? A pillar of fire. But what's another representation? What leads the Israelites during the day? A cloud. A cloud is what they follow because the cloud represents the presence of God. When Solomon finishes his temple, what comes and fills up the temple? The presence of God. And what is that manifested in? It's, it's in a cloud. You see this in the New Testament when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when Moses and Elijah come and Peter, James and John are there. What descends on the mountain? A cloud descends and a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my son. And so we see Jesus here saying he's coming in a cloud. And so it's not like a movie rendition that he he's breaking through the clouds. That's not what he's saying. He's not coming sort of riding on a cloud. He's coming with the glory cloud. He's coming, he's bringing in the very presence of God into this world. And so God's presence is coming back into the world just like it was at the Garden of Eden. Christ is ushering in the presence of God immediately and effectively into your life when he comes. And the question that we need to ask is if he came, if God's presence came streaming in from another world into your life right now, what would he see? If the light that knows no darkness came in right now into your life, what would it find? C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, The World's Last Night. We should ask more and more often how the things which we are saying or doing or failing to do at each moment will look when the irresistible light streams in upon it. That light which is so different than the light of this world. Women sometimes have the problem of trying to judge by artificial light how a dress will look by daylight. That is very like the problem for each of us. To dress out our souls, not for the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next. And listen to this. The good dress is the one that will face that light. For that light will last forever. So are, by your morality, are you dressing your souls for the daylight of another world? When the irresistible light comes streaming in and you can't hide from it. Remember what the people in Revelation said when the irresistible light came streaming in and they weren't children of God? What did they say? We want the mountains to cover us. We don't want the irresistible light to see our lives. But when it comes in and it penetrates your life, what is it going to find? Certainly thinking that that light could break in at any moment would affect how you go out on a date 
with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It would affect how you take a test. It would affect how you do your taxes. It would affect how you seal a business deal. It certainly would impact what you watch on television. What you look at when you're sitting behind a computer screen. It would affect your mouth so when you opened it to begin to tell a joke, you would ask yourself, what if the light of the glory of the presence of God broke in at this moment? It would affect how you spoke about other people. Quite frequently, when I was the area director for Young Life, I'd go to a high school campus and there'd be a bunch of high school guys standing around talking. Maybe before school. So I'm sort of trying to break into the conversation. And actually, this happened just last week. I was at a football game on Friday. I'm trying to track down this guy who's really way off the chart. And so I find him and he's around a bunch of other guys. And you know what happened? I walked into the group and what happened to the group? Every mouth shut. Felt like I was in a prayer meeting. Well, let's all bow our heads because we got every mouth shut. And within about 30 seconds, they all left except for this one fellow. I kind of felt bad for him because I didn't want to ruin his time with his friends. But if the irresistible light of the glory of God came streaming in at any point during your week, what would it find? Second thing it has an impact on is your money. Let's say again from verses 34 through 37, you and I are not masters, we're managers. So in terms of our finances, you might say that we're all money managers. But you're not managing your own money. You're managing God's money. And you always know as a preacher when somebody's really grasped this, because if you ever do a sermon on finances or money, pretty frequently somebody will come and say, yeah, I mean, you're right, Paul, you're right, Pastor. I I really should be more generous and I really should give away more of my money. Do you hear where they're missing it? Did, Did you catch it? I really should give away what? More of my money. You see, they think they're masters. They think they've got their own money and they should give some of it away from God. And the truth is, all the resources they have are God's. And He is going to come back and get all those resources. And all you're doing is managing those things. You're not an owner. You're not a master. The goal isn't to give away 10% and then be the master of the 90%. The goal is to understand that you are the manager of everything that you're given. In Matthew 25, most of us are familiar with this parable. It's the parable where the master comes and he gives the servants different portions of money. Remember, he gives them talents. One, he gives them five. One, he gives two talents. 
One, he gives one talent. And it says in the parable that the master goes away for a long time. And then he comes back, and in the text it says, he's come back to settle the account. And I like in the, in the old King James, it says, he's come to reckon the account. It's the day of reckoning. And the picture is the master with the ledger book of every dollar he has given you. And he's going to say, okay, now what did you do with that dollar? And what did you do with that dollar? See, it's my money. And I want to know what you spent your dollar on. I have a friend who manages my very modest retirement. He's a money manager. And when I go and see him, I really don't ever want to hear him say anything like, well, this is what my money's been doing recently. It's my money. What have you been doing with my money? And so the master is coming back and he's going to give he's going to ask you to give an account for every dollar that he's given you. And if you know the light of the glory of Christ could break in at any moment. It's going to have an effect on how you spend your money. And we need to ask ourselves Are we ready to give an account, not for 10%, but are we ready to give an account for 100% of what God has given us? The third thing we see, and there are plenty, but one of the things that we see that the imminent return of Christ should impact is our mission. It should have an immediate impact on our morality. If the irresistible light comes streaming in from another world, what will it find us saying? What will it find us doing? Secondly, how how will it find us managing the resources that we've been given? And finally, how are we doing on the mission? In verse 34, you see that each servant has been given his own work. We're not all doing the same thing. But we are all following the same direction. It's like a body. It's all working in different ways, but it's all working to move in one particular direction. And Jesus is very clear throughout the Bible and in this passage that the direction for the church is that we should, according to verse 10 in Matthew 28, we should be proclaiming the gospel to all nations. That's the mission. Now, in that mission, we all have different functions. We're not all going to be the same thing. We're not all going to be a mouthpiece. We're all, not all going to be a servant. Some, some are going to be doing different roles. When I believe it was William Carey, who was the father of modern missions, and he went to India, he told his preacher back home, I feel like a man who's been lo- being lowered down into a very dark well. And he looked at his preacher and he said, I need someone to hold the rope. And so you may be a rope holder. You may be the person who's going down into the well, but we're all together moving to proclaim the gospel to all nations. And yet you see here at the end of the passage, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to not get spiritually sleepy. Don't fall asleep. We've we've got a mission to accomplish here, and we can't accomplish it if you're falling asleep all the time. 
And so wake up, be awake, go forward and bring the gospel into the nations. And the perfect picture of this really is found in Jonah. The the sleepiness that can come over a person when they know what the goal is, you see so clearly in Jonah. Jonah was called, remember, to the great lost city of Nineveh in Assyria. People are perishing spiritually. And instead of going to Nineveh, he goes in the opposite direction. He's probably sailing towards Spain. And he gets on a boat with a bunch of pagan sailors and he pays his way on and he just begins to head out in the opposite direction. And we all know what happens. A huge storm comes up. And while these these pagan sailors are bailing water and they're dying, they're just about ready to die physically. And the poor people in Nineveh are perishing spiritually. Where's Jonah? Do you remember where the, the, the captain found him? He's in the bottom of the ship. What is he doing? He's asleep. While people are perishing, the man of God is asleep. And so I need to ask myself first. And I need to ask the elders of this church. Do we realize that people are perishing? Do we realize that the light of the glory of God might break in any moment? And are we as a church sleepy? Then I have to ask you as a church, are you so comfortable, are you so full that in terms of bringing the gospel, you've fallen asleep? I had one of the most frustrating experiences two weeks ago. I was, I've had this relationship for the last several months with this man who's dying of a brain tumor. And I happened to meet him through some circumstances and I had never met him before. And so I just went to him while he was already in the hospital. And so each time I I went to him, I didn't talk about golf and I didn't talk about the weather and I didn't talk about the news. He, He couldn't hear well and he couldn't speak well. So I got within about six inches of his face every time and I started to try to talk to him about Jesus Christ. Until most of the time he'd say he really just didn't want to talk about it anymore. And when he died, the lady who was uh, his next of kin called me and asked if I would do his funeral. And so I did not know if the man was a believer. I had no idea. And I just told the lady I couldn't stand up and pretend that he was. I don't I'm not the judge, but I just didn't have any knowledge that he'd given his life to Christ. And and what really was frustrating to me is that two men, pretty typically at a funeral, would stand up and talk about their friend. And these two men who stood up were friends who went to college with them. And they told really funny stories and it was totally appropriate. It was very interesting. But the second man who stood up, he spoke for about 15 minutes about really interesting things that were really encouraging at this particular moment. But then at the very end of his speech, 
he said, I feel like I should read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I've known Joe for 50 years and I never asked him about Jesus. And I wanted to stand up and say, wake up! I've been doing it for the last four months when the guy couldn't hear. You had 50 years. Have you fallen asleep anywhere? If the light of the glory of the gospel could come in, streaming in to this world right now. Is there any place in your life that you'd say, oh, I've fallen asleep. I just wish I had that one more conversation. The knowledge that Jesus Christ could come back and the earth is going to begin to quake should have a massive impact on how we think about our morality how we think about our money, and how we think about our mission. One final observation about the text. Maybe it's not as easily seen as you might imagine. Jesus' second coming is not going to be like his first. Everybody likes Jesus' first coming, right? I mean, there's a bright light in the, in the sky. A star is lighting up the sky. And shepherds are following it. And wise men are following it. There's a little baby wrapped in a manger. I mean, what could be more harmless? What, what could be more approachable? And the glory of God is wrapped up in these swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And the, and the angels, you know what the angels are doing? They're coming out of heaven and they're proclaiming this great message Peace on earth. But that's not what you read here about Jesus' second advent or his second coming. Stars aren't in the sky. Stars are falling out of the sky. The glory of God isn't wrapped up in a little cloth. It's coming in its full power. And it's not coming harmlessly. It's coming in a way that the whole earth is beginning to rip open. The powers in heaven are being shaken. And the angels seem to be falling out of heaven. Not with a message of peace, but a message of judgment. They are spreading across the globe to see who are the ones who have trusted in Christ. And when Jesus comes, he's immediately going to begin to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's immediately separating the righteous for the unrighteous. And so perhaps the most critical question for any of us here is if the light from the other world came streaming in right now. Are you prepared? The answer is, on our own, no. No one on their own is prepared. 
You remember in Psalm 130, the little haunting question says this. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And we know that we couldn't stand God's judgment because we know we couldn't even stand underneath our own judgment. Francis Schaeffer did this little thought experiment that I thought was really fascinating that helped clarify some of this. He said, imagine uh, this. God put a little invisible tape recorder around your neck. And you didn't know it and you lived your whole life. And the only thing the tape recorder ever picks up is when you start telling someone else how they should be living. And as soon as you say you ought to click, the tape recorder starts recording. And that's all it records your whole life. And then you reach the great judgment throne of God and he says, you have no idea how merciful I'm going to be. I'm not going to judge you by my standards. I'm not going to pull out the Ten Commandments or the Great Commandment to love God and love your neighbor. I'm just going to take the little tape recorder that's been wrapped around your neck and you go, well, I didn't see that. He says, well, it's invisible. You can't see it. And he says, we're just going to stand here and rewind the tape and we're just going to listen to every time you said this is how somebody ought to be living their lives. And we're going to look at your life and see if you measured up against your own standard. And you know, you know, you can't live by that standard. We have a massive problem. We know we cannot even live by our own standards. So how are we going to stand in the judgment when a holy God comes in? And the answer is in Mark chapter 15. Jesus is hanging on a cross. And you remember what happened in the middle of the day? Darkness fell. In Matthew 27, it says. The sun went out. The earth quaked. Rocks split open. And it happened when Jesus was saying this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what was happening at that moment? It was judgment day. And what the judgment that is meant for me that Paul Phillips deserved on judgment day at the cross, Christ took my judgment. The judge came down from heaven and took his own judgment. The gospel is that Jesus Christ has come and he alone has absorbed the judgment that is meant for you and me for this purpose, so that when he comes again, you can stand.
if you've trusted in Christ when he comes again, if the light comes in right now, you can stand. Not by your own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to do something here that we don't do normally. It's always a little awkward for a pastor actually to do it. Or I should say it's a little awkward for this pastor to do it. And I'm going to invite you to uh, come forward. There's something about movement that helps. You know that when we take communion, there's something helpful about and healthy about coming forward. When Christ calls his disciples, what does he say? Come and follow me. When he calls a lost person, he says, repent, turn around, move in a different direction. And this might be the day that you need to trust in Christ. That you've really been trusting in your own righteousness. And you may just say, God, if you came today, I don't think I could stand. And I want to, and I know I need you. If you're a Christian here, if you're a believer, if the light came in today, what would it see about your moral behavior? What would it see about the way you use your money? What would it see about how you're carrying out the mission? Are you sleepy? You may just want to come and stand here and put your hand on the table or kneel or stand at the stage. I don't know. There's nothing magic about it. The same transformation, the same conversation can happen in your seat. It's just I'm offering you an opportunity that sometimes it's helpful to move. And then you can look back on this moment and say, yep, God moved me in a way that I just don't want to go back now. Some music will play for a couple of minutes and I'll be here to the side if it's helpful for anybody to pray with me or for me to pray for you. But really the issue is between you and the Lord. If you'd like, you come.